So I realized, like, I, I don't think I talk to my stepdad. I don't, sometimes, some days I don't even say hi because I don't see him. Like, you, you know, oh, passing whatever. Oh, in the night sort of thing. Yeah. And then my mom, I, you know, see my mom, whatever. But I don't, like, have conversations with anybody. And so I'm like, God, when's the last time I talked? <laughs> I'm, like, sitting here thinking, like, when, when was the last time I had a conversation? I think with Joe last week. <laughs> when Em and the kids are away, because they're staying at her mum's, I wake up in the morning, especially if I'm off work, and I'll get to, like you said, I'll get to the evening, I'll think, I've not, I've not said anything. I've not needed to. <laughs> I've just got up, had some breakfast, done my housework, and I'm like, oh, what the? No, yeah. I don't think I've actually need, said a thing. Not yeah, even. and like when I go to open, or like if I get a call, and I start and I answer it, I sound like, I'm like, Hello. <laughs> like it's all like I haven't talked and yeah. she's, <laughs> all, she's definitely putting it's all gruff. <laughs> we call that our sick voice when you ring in work sick you've got to <clears throat> yeah yeah I... and, and like suddenly if you do have to call in sick and you're not sick you suddenly feel sick mm. like you feel yeah yeah you have to imagine <laughs> it's bringing it forward making it a reality <laughs> I always, oh I always do the uh, the diarrhea and vomiting. It's like, oh, that was last night. I can come in, and the, then they go, oh, you can't. Yeah, like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> well, if you're telling me I can't, I feel great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, knowing the clear twenty four hours. The only problem is, I tried that with McDonald's. They went, oh, well, if you're feeling great, come in. I was like, oh no. <laughs> hey up! I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is consistently eccentric a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story starts in the Victorian era. My favourite. And it doesn't start in England, Scotland, Ireland or <laughs> Wales. Because we're starting in India. Because it was India where Elsie Inglis spent the first 12 years of her life. She was born on August 16th, 1864, within sight of the Himalayas, because her father, John, was working for the British East India Company as a magistrate at the time. So he'd, he'd originally had a family, um, a full kind of family with like six kids with his wife, and then they'd gone over to India, and they hadn't been able to keep from each other, and had a kind of second <laughs> family who were all born in India, and um, Elsie was the oldest of those. India was romantic. Oh, it must. I mean, I guess, <laughs> I guess it must have been if you were in the privileged elite, because although there was abject poverty, uh, people who were working for the East India Company weren't experiencing it. If you have, like, if you moved and your life was, it's a new start and your happy happiness turns to sexualness with your wife. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, they'd they'd had to. Um, run away during the Indian uprising of um, 1857. So he'd sent his wife back home to England for a little bit. But by the time she got back, absence had made the heart grow fonder. Yeah. And they started a second. Um, second wave. of. <laughs> and even, even though he had like six proper kids that he got to know, apparently Elsie was immediately his favourite. And all the other kids kind of instinctively knew this, but there was, a, I mean, apparently, I don't know, there was no jealousy. Elsie's which where in the line of she's children? She's seventh of nine eventual seventh children, of, but okay. she's the oldest of the second go around. <laughs> okay. After after the family had returned from England to to father, and he'd you know yeah. got amorous again. <laughs> um, as a person, though, unlike a lot of the people working for the East India Company, he was quite an advocate for the locals. He was a champion of um, education for women. He was a champion of um, stopping infanticide. Um, you know, when you had a girl, um, a lot of people were killing off the female offspring. So he he was trying to do everything he could to, to actually live what the British were saying they were supposed to be doing in India, which was uplifting the, the, the poor people in the communities that they were administrating. Um and he practiced what he preached with his kids as well. So whereas in a lot of um, families back in England, you would educate your sons to a high degree because you wanted them to become lawyers, you wanted them to become a successful yeah. businessman, and you would educate your daughters just enough so that they could get a husband. John was very much, every single one of my kids is having 
top-notch education. And Elsie... Very forward-thinking. Yeah, she, she benefited massively from this. And she also really benefited from the fact that she was away from that really rigid society and no one was telling her she couldn't do stuff. And they were all home homeschooled. Oh, yeah, yeah. They had um, t- tutors brought in, so they were homeschooled. But that meant that they weren't they weren't experiencing rigid class systems like everyone growing up. It was almost like a superpower that the kids had. So when Elsie yeah. said, oh, do you know what I'm interested in? Am I interested in medicine? There was no one going. There was no limits. She could do study whenever she wanted. Yeah. Women can't be doctors. That just wasn't <laughs> said to her. Her dad just went, oh, cool. Here's some books. <laughs> there you go. Learn about medicine. You can, <laughs> that's what you want to do. You do it. And everything was going great. But then, unfortunately, the family had to leave India on quite short notice in 1876. Uh, and this was when John had suggested to the current viceroy, Lord Lytton, that it might be a mistake ordering the invasion of Afghanistan. Considering how the first Anglo-Afghan war, 33 years prior, had been referred to historically as the disaster in Afghanistan which kind of yeah. suggests it didn't go well for the British <laughs> um, but Lord Lytton he was like this time I'm in charge it's going to go well and anyone who isn't oh. getting with the programme can get out yeah. and John he wisely chose the latter option he was like okay I, I think I'll take early retirement thank you <laughs> I don't want to be anywhere near this disaster uh, he sensibly decided to leave but extra sensibly or extra cautiously he wanted to spend the next two years in Tasmania rather than Britain uh, a country that's double the distance from Afghanistan than his home in Scotland so <laughs> he wa- he would have been about 7,000 miles away but he wanted to be 14 <laughs> he wanted to be on literally on the other side of the planet to this conflict just in case it went as bad as he suspected it might um Although, to be fair, during the Second Anglo-Afghan War, it was agreed that the British could say they'd won as long as they didn't actually leave any troops in the country. Which is, is weirdly um, reminiscent of what's going on now, isn't it? Yeah. it's Mission yeah. accomplished, boys. History repeats itself. Aye. Uh, and it only cost the deaths of around 20,000 troops. So, that's good. Oh, yeah, no, that's not too bad. As a result... <laughs> a sort of tangential result of the Second Anglo-Afghan War, Elsie English found herself on a boat on her way to Scotland for the first time in her life at the age of 14. She spent the duration of the voyage from Tasmania acting as self-appointed nurse to the younger children. Like I say, her fascination with um, medicine had begun back in India um, when she was very young, but by now she'd um, developed to the point where she was taking the time to painstakingly paint on different kinds of um, sores, eruptions and blisters onto her dolls so she could treat specific illnesses. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it's many a happy afternoon curing right. everything you could imagine under the sun. If she could see a picture of it, she could paint it onto a doll and then she could cure it. I mean, I'm guessing a <laughs> I lot of that. the uh, cures involved hot soapy water, but still. You know, she could take those dolls and then take them on the ship and then like compare them. If somebody has something, she, she oh, like a range dolls of dolls, as like so. a, yeah, like a <laughs> holding the little Barbie arms up to the various. <laughs> thing. Yeah, I think ooh, you yeah. look like this doll. Uh, that's syphilis. <laughs> I'm sorry. Or that's. Uh... <laughs> oh look, you've got you've got shingles. That's fine. That's yeah. fine. That's treatable. We're okay. Oh, chicken pox. <laughs> here, here we go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, even a single generation before. Elsie had the idea of becoming a doctor it would pretty much have been unthinkable in Scotland but thanks to the pioneering woman Sophia Jex Blake Sophia that you know well having done an episode yourself (laughs) on her uh, this particular glass ceiling had already been shattered by the time Elsie was beginning her school career so as she started in school at the age of 14 uh, wow she wasn't starting it I will point out like elementary she was uh, jumping in at her age level and actually, it was said that she she was actually more developed because while she'd been tutoring, she'd also been teaching herself. So she'd actually gone above and beyond the level that was expected. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she well, she had a direct line you? to, I can go here, then I can go there, then I can become a doctor. There was no 
big question mark at any point in that journey for her. And she started well in the prestigious Charlotte Square Institution in Edinburgh, an all-girls boarding school. Uh, And much like Sophia, who she would later meet, uh, we'll get to that actually, (laughs) Elsie was the kind of woman who didn't care what others thought of her. Because she'd lived so far away and in such a supportive environment, she she didn't have any sense of self-doubt at all and this she managed to hold on to that throughout her entire life it was just like the idea that she wouldn't be able to achieve something to her was absolutely ridiculous she honestly that's that's an amazing trait to have that like self-confidence and it wasn't it wasn't the kind of self-confidence where she thought oh think i'll just get by things will happen for me things will work out yeah it was she knew she she was her own destiny yeah if she She was the one working to get it yeah and she will put it. She will put in the hours. Um, at school, Elsie, miss, missing the freedom that she'd been able to experience in India, especially the wide open spaces, she asked <laughs> her teachers if the girls might be allowed to play in the Charlotte Square Gardens, because right in the middle of the square there was this lovely green space that was, you know, for parading through in your finery. But she thought during the day it's pretty empty. It's it's a massive play park that we're not allowed to touch. Yeah. The directors of the school said. Elsie, that's fine, but only so long as every resident in the entire square agrees. And they probably assumed that Elsie would find this an overwhelming (laughs) task. This is something that no kid of 14 is going to have the brass (laughs) neck to go around and knock because these were the great and good of Edinburgh. These were the movers and shakers. She got it done in a week. She wasn't bothered (laughs) at all. She just went around, knocked on the mall, was like, yep, 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 yep. And I'm guessing they were just a bit taken aback by this tiny little girl, just assertively sort of propositioning, you know, giving all the reasons. Yeah. It would have been a bit different to what they but expected. But you know, too, how do you tell a little 14-year-old girl, no, you want to play on the park? No. Like, I can see that she probably appealed to the woman of the house or something, and they were like, oh, this sweet young girl. Like, what... What could possibly go wrong if they played out there in the park? It probably wasn't as hard as they, you know, think that it might have been. Well, in later life, she <laughs> she definitely developed a reputation for being um, charming and very uh, amiable and personable. So people just got on yeah, with her. Yeah, probably. And she got she on probably... with people. She seemed to be very <laughs> empathetic, and she knew what to say to people to sort of get them on side. But it wasn't. It didn't come across as manipulative because she was genuinely interested in people. Yeah. It wasn't. How can I get this out of you? It was, oh, I really... She probably could have done some Girl Scout cookies too while she was at it. If, she could have just gone door to door and just... She did miss a chance to make some money there. She should have had a, a, <laughs> right? a hustle going on. But she got the park. <laughs> I guess that was a win for a 14-year-old girl. She hadn't <laughs> realised she might need the money down the line. Uh, at the age of 18, she spent a year in a finishing school in Paris. But she didn't like Paris for oh. reasons unbeknown to me when compared uh. to Edinburgh. She missed the drizzle, I think. Uh. Um, and she returned to Edinburgh to decide how she could best spend the rest of her life as a 19-year-old girl. So she hits the age of 19. Schooling's that she's expected to do because she's been to a finishing school. The clue's yeah. in the name. So now it's an open path for her. What does she want to do? Elsie decided that she still wished to pursue a career in medicine. And after a year's delay to hone her skills nursing her dying mother. Um, yeah, her father's connections ensured that she was able to enrol at Sophia Jex Blake's Edinburgh School for Medicine for women at the age of 23. Yay! So the very first school of medicine, one of the very first intakes, and there is Elsie um, Inglis, front and centre. However, and oh. this is where I have to unfortunately put a small tiny black mark against Sophia <laughs> which I hate to do because uh, yeah but it, it's always the way that the, nobody's perfect the freedoms that one person fights so hard for the next generation want to put, push that further and this is kind of what happened here because they were expecting a really supportive environment uh, but because Sophia at this point she wanted to consolidate her gains she, she felt she'd, she'd got so much in terms of being allowed to open this school, that she was incredibly uh, strict as a disciplinarian of the women who were under her charge at the school. Ugh. 
Things reached a head in June 1888 when two sisters, Grace and Martha Cadle, they stayed on the wards of Leith Hospital beyond the 5pm curfew imposed by Jex Blake. So she had a strict, no matter what you were doing, if it was 4.59, you had to drop it. And they had decided that they were with a, a person who had an amazing head injury. Really interesting case. And that, you know, we're, we're here to learn. And this is, this is the kind of case we're not going to see again. So we really, just this once, I'm sure she'll understand if we stay a little bit later. Because, you know, inquisitiveness, a desire to learn, that's, that's the trait you yeah. want in a trainee doctor. Yeah, Sophia's exactly. bound to understand, isn't she? She expelled the sisters with immediate effect. Oh, jeez. So, yeah. <coughs> that is sad. Uh, it gets worse because the sisters then successfully sued the Edinburgh School of Medicine for women. And Elsie Inglis was so horrified by the entire thing, because these two women were also Elsie's cousins. I don't think I mentioned that, but they were. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that she left and convinced her father to help her set up her own medical school for women, which she wow. called the Edinburgh <laughs> college of medicine for women and she set that up the very next year in 1889 you know i sophia did she started the school and then many other schools popped up Mm. and that makes more sense now that you explained that she was really strict because i didn't realize that she was so strict like that but that would make more sense Mm. like okay your school is great we're glad you started it but like we can run something better. And I think it was just, she'd, she'd worked so hard, Sophia, to get to where she was that she was just terrified that if her students were seen to be not following the rules and not following decorum and doing yeah. things that they maybe shouldn't be doing, like staying after hours because of what they might see, that everyone would turn around and go, actually, no, we made a huge mistake. You can shut yeah. that thing down. We were right the first time. Women shouldn't be doctors. So I think it came from a place of, you know, genuinely wanting to protect what she'd managed to right get, yeah rather than a i don't want anyone to do better than me because apparently they did reconcile and they supported each other so i wonder after... she she was very like wanting to start schools and wanting uh, before she became the doctor and um wanting to do that and then um i mean that's why she went to america was to learn how to open a school mm. and so maybe she just got all caught up in all that and mm. then she forgot about the basics of like we're here to learn and we'd like to see you know this going on i know that when i have student nurses and there's some great case or something really going on i'm like telling them go go and look go and ask your instructor go go see what's going on because you may not get to see this yeah get the hands on while you've got the opportunity while you can so Sophia probably lost that sight. She probably lost that. And it sounds like it was probably later in her life before she started to retire. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she ended up, her school ended up closing. Well, that's what I was about to go on to say. Uh, The college did outlast Sophia Jex Blake's school. And for a time, it was the only female, uh, it was the only school for female students in Edinburgh. So it, for a time, replaced Sophia's school. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Which is weird, considering when she helped set it up, um, Elsie hadn't finished her training because she only obtained her triple qualification in 1892. Which sounds very, very grand, but that's because she became licensed to the Royal Colleges of Surgeons and Physicians of both Edinburgh and Glasgow. Wow. Which you should think would be four, but apparently Glasgow was a two for one. If you qualify for one, you got both. Uh. So ended up being three separate qualifications. <laughs> only two years later... Elsie was using her medical skills to nurse her father through his last illness. Because obviously she was part of the second family, so he was quite an old guy when... Yeah. He was relatively old when they had Elsie. He died in 1894 at the age of 73. And this was the end of the only significant male relationship in Elsie's entire life. From this point, she made the conscious decision to dedicate her adult life to the betterment of her fellow women in Edinburgh. And when I say um, she she didn't have a significant male relationship, there's nothing to say that she had a significant female relationship in a romantic sense. She, if anything, appeared to be asexual because there's very little written about her ever even showing an interest. She's just so focused on yeah. her, her. Her love was truly medicine <laughs> and everything else took a back seat. 
Sounds like me. Her first move, she gained extra qualifications in midwifery and gynaecology in London and Dublin, because apparently Dublin was. One I love of the that word, heads. midwifery. Oh, <laughs> she could midwif with the best of them. Midwifery. <laughs> Uh, and it was as part of a plan to set up her own hospital in the Royal Mile, which is in the heart of Edinburgh's old town and right near um, the slums. So they had these, um, uh, they were just like tenements built on top and top and top of each other. Um, oh, man. And she she knew that the people who lived in those, they had no real access to healthcare. So rather than build outside of the sort of really crowded old city, she bought a tenement house. Sort of like a big old townhouse uh, and built a midwifery hospital into that. It also oh, wow. had um, a surgical ward for a short time in it. So you just pop that in there. So just you're walking down the Royal Mile, townhouse, 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 hospital, townhouse, townhouse, I've townhouse. I've been on the I've been on the Royal Mile. Yeah. I've I've walked it. Ah well would <coughs> would you believe that there was a hospital on it? No, or yeah. a tent or like a slum. Yeah. It was from back in the day where, you know, everybody just lived in the, the old part of Edinburgh. So it was, that was all there was at one stage. Yeah. So wow. they had to put the poor people somewhere and they just sort yeah. of built them into these tall, tall sort of um, slums. Uh, the hospice, as it was called, although not with the modern meaning of hospice, don't worry. Oh, I was going to say, dang. Yeah. <laughs> They're uh, all dying. <laughs> What's it was going called, on? It was called the hospice, but it was focused on entirely the other end Something of life. Something's in the water. Because it was a maternity and general hospital, and it was opened in 1904 with the help of Elsie's good friend, Dr. Jessie McLaren McGregor, which is in the running for the most Scottish name ever. McLaren McGregor. <laughs> McLaren McGregor. Jessie McLaren McGregor. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, it was a, exactly a decade after um, the death of her father. It was staffed entirely by female medical staff and proved to be invaluable to the poorest women of the city. Elsie would not only work tirelessly, both on call and lecturing for the new female students, but she would also open her own home to patients as a place to convalesce after giving birth or surgical procedures in order to ensure that they received the best care possible. Because oh, she good. saw that some of these people lived on like the seventh, eighth, ninth floor. And if oh, you've yeah. had to undergo surgery, the idea of going back to that <laughs> unheated, you know, two oh. bedroom, uh, two room flat yeah getting up the stairs she was the... just like no 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 you come you come to mine i'll decide when you need to go home don't you worry about your <coughs> husband he can he can wow. look after himself for a week you're staying with me and we're making sure that you get better that's good it's like the case management now it's like discharge planning type oh you yeah know, and yeah we're thinking she 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 really it, it wasn't for her ended after she'd you know sewn them up or after she'd administered the treatment, it's like, right, it's until you feel like you're ready and we'll look after you. And in keeping with that, in order to support people's mental health, she'd often waiver fees in order to ensure that no woman in Edinburgh felt that they could not come and seek assistance at the hospice. So word got around that even if you couldn't afford it, go, because she'll find a way. If she needs to, you know, make sure that, you know, some some richer patient pays a little bit extra or if she needs it she'll make sure that she gets you in and you'll that's amazing that's awesome um during these years and she spent 20 years running this and it was always on the brink of financial collapse because oh. she'd do things like waive fees um and because it was wasn't a hospital it was a house that she'd converted so there was she's charming so she can go house to house no, around she... that park and ask for money she was constantly schmoozing people to try and get money, soliciting donations, doing whatever she could, wheeler in and dealer in to get it keeping going. Yeah. Even with working on call, working as a surgeon, as a midwife, working as a lecturer, you know, working at home, looking after people because she had loads of patients in her house. Oh. She found the time to pen a novel. Well. Now, it was unpublished, to be fair, and we only know about it because her sister found it um, oh, after wow. her death. It was titled The Story of a Modern Woman and the book focused on a 37-year-old spinster called Hildegard Forrest. So it was like a fictional novel. It was fiction, but reading between the lines, Hildegard Forrest was very obviously based on uh, Elsie herself. Uh. And it seemed like the novel was her way of working through um, 
sort of like the emotions and the, the the worries that she had about the fact that she was growing older and she still was unmarried and what that meant for her because Hildegard Forrest in the uh-huh. novel she seeks to find meaning in her life having accepted that she has missed the opportunity to have children the central revelation of the book is a spiritual awakening which convinces Hildegard that she can have a stake in the future without children. Indeed, Elsie described all of the children she helped come into the world as part of her work at the hospice and as oh, her greatest sh- legacy. So yeah. she, she came to terms with the fact that she didn't have any kids, with the fact that as she walked around Edinburgh, there were... There's a lot of kids there because of her. Well, she was stopped by mothers all the time who just wanted to show her how the kids were getting on and just wanted to thank her again. Aww. So although she never had a, a child of her own, so many of the kids in Edinburgh would come up and give her hugs. She would be asked to hold babies. She was like Aww. a proxy mum for the entire <laughs> old city of Edinburgh at one stage in her life. With her focus on the plight of women, it should be surprising to nobody that Elsie took up the suffragist movement with a passion of course and the key here is not suffragette she was not a militant like the Pankhurst, but she was a suffragist who were the non-violent who believed that they could achieve their aims through peaceful means uh, and that group was led by uh, i never get this name right so i'll give it a go millicent fawcett that's a great you don't get the name millicent anymore millicent no it think... sounds evil actually Really? She was lovely, Millicent. (laughs) Uh, No. She was was a lovely lady and she never, do you know what? She never even hurt bugs. She wouldn't kill a wasp. She would kiss it lovingly on the forehead, teach it the error of its ways and send it off a better wasp. That's how lovely Millicent was. There's a um, whole religion. Oh my gosh, I forgot the name. There's a whole religion where they don't believe in killing anything. They use uh, brush, like uh, brooms. Buddhism. And it's not Buddhism. There it's is, another one. There's a There are branches of Buddhism that do the same thing, where you use yeah. a very soft brush to make sure that you don't step on anything. Yeah, it's yeah. not Buddhism, but it's uh, J- Jang, Jang, uh, Jainism. Jainism. Okay. And, and they... Yeah, they believe in reincarnation, and that that's why they don't want to... <laughs> the bug you step on may be your own great-grandmother. <laughs> yes. Nobody wants it's, to do that. Right. It's a, it's a, they're very, very strict. They have, there's not very many of them left, but Jane, Jane's, Jainism. Wow. Anyway, sorry. <clears throat> I took a class in, um, it was an advanced English class, but we did religion, religious studies and i had to do um a paper on them i actually had to do a presentation it was a whole paper presentation i had to like sell a product from them like oh aim right yeah and um yeah so that seems quite cruelty free (laughs) right it had to be completely like you know now all natural but no bugs were hurt in the making of this product (laughs) like no bugs flew in the machine or <coughs> and we just have people stood there with nets at all times like, no, no please don't if even one yeah. of you gets in this machine we have to throw away thousands of pounds worth of stock just to be on the safe side yeah. oh no you killed somebody's grandmother well, and that... um it's it was a very interesting religion to like i'd never heard of it before well, if it's anyway. that strict no wonder i mean it sounds like it's I, I think not it's the kind even of thing you can strict... just join yeah, it's not. It's more strict than the Buddhism, I believe. But um, there's, it's yeah, it's still around. Anyway, go on. <laughs> so anyway, back to Millicent, who who wasn't quite to that extreme of um, nonviolence, <laughs> but definitely wasn't up for some of the stuff that the suffragettes were up to, like you know, making bombs, setting fire to buildings, throwing themselves in front of racehorses. <laughs> they weren't up for any of that. And Elsie, she wasn't up for any of that as well because she above everything else was an eternal optimist and she believed that if she set her mind to something it was going to happen so she honestly believed that if she started trying to persuade people it was only a matter of time before they saw that she was right um she became a figurehead of the suffragist movement in scotland and was made the secretary of the scottish federation of women's suffrage from 1906 to 1914 
The reason she left this post in 1914, at the age of 50, was the advent of the First World War. Which really is where our story begins. Because that entire life is a preamble to what's about to happen. Oh, goodness. (laughs) That's not even what Elsie's famous for. (laughs) That starting the first maternity hospital in this you know in edinburgh wow. and doing all of that work with the poor and the underprivileged and being a mother to pretty much the entirety of an area of edinburgh that's that's stuff she did before she did the a real whole stuff. other new life yeah okay okay so world war one broke out and elsie seeing that she finally got her hospital to the point where it wasn't scrabbling around for money and it was almost self-sufficient, she looked across the battlefields of Europe and she saw that there was a need for medical support on the front lines. And she felt that as a good British citizen, it was her duty to offer her services to the government intending to the soldiers on those front lines. Unfortunately... At the age of 50? She's 50 at this point, yeah. Okay. So she's 50. She looks and she starts to hear the rumours of these hellscape battles... And she wow. goes, that's where I need to be because that's where I can help the most. And I've, I've done children, I've done women. Maybe it's time I started doing something for the blokes. Maybe I could uh, <laughs> complete the set. Right. Unfortunately, her stubborn insistence that women should receive equity in society ensured that the government rejected her offers of assistance. So they said, How rude. thanks, no thanks. We don't need your sort because you might give our soldiers ideas of things like socialism while you're over there we don't need that <laughs> dear god they'll come back expecting to be rewarded for putting or, their lives on the or line or they might get a little excited because it's a woman i don't know that they played that card actually but mm, i can see why they might use it <laughs> well i mean you know um we'd had like mary seacole and we'd had um florence nightingale yeah, but mary kind of made her way anyway <laughs> she kind of she kind of just went <laughs> I guess yeah, you could have you could have tried to stop Mary. It wasn't going to happen. But right. you know, there have been um, women nurses on the front lines or near the front lines for a while, so it wasn't and completely Nightingale, beyond the realm. She when she did her thing, she kind of had strings that she could pull. Yeah, she was she was a lot more politically savvy than Mary, and also, yeah. I guess the thing about Florence was she was literally across an ocean from the front lines of that war. That's true. She wasn't that close. Yeah, it was. You know, she she treated people from the front lines, but they had to go on a boat to get yeah, to get to Florence. That's true. She was okay. Um, but the government said no to Elsie, and for most people, that would have been the end of things. But uh-huh. Elsie Inglis was not someone to change her mind when she decided on a course of action. So within a few weeks, she and her fellow female doctors had begun organising a series of units to form the vanguard of the Scottish Women's Hospitals for Foreign Service. <laughs> Much of the funds to you know, get this endeavour going had been received from members of the suffragist movement. However, the name had been carefully chosen to be as politically neutral as possible. After all, these women weren't trying to make a point. They were just trying to help. So they were saying, although we're all suffragists and that's why we're all working together, we're putting that to one side because there's... There's a bigger thing to yeah. worry about right now. Yeah, they weren't being aggressive. Yeah, yeah, or aggressive or trying to be sort of passive aggressive even. They were just, we really want to help and this is the only way we can because the government said no to our offer, so we're just going to do it ourselves. Where the British Army were dismissive of help from the new organisation, their French allies were more than happy to accept extra doctors and they offered the Abbey of Ruimont as a base of operations. This abbey is about 35 miles north of Paris and is absolutely breathtaking. It's an amazing building. It was built in the 13th century by a bona fide saint, although nice. obviously he wasn't a saint at the time. That was a later thing because it's got to be <laughs> posthumous. Um, and has members of the French royal family buried in its grounds. So it was quite an important place as well. It was initially earmarked to have 100 beds under the command of Dr. Alice Hutchinson. And this was quickly expanded to over 600 as staff struggled to deal with the massive casualties from battles such as the Somme. Wow. So they, they had to scale up pretty quick when they realised yeah. how industrialised this death thing had become during the war. Yeah. Elsie herself, she didn't intend to actually go to the front lines. 
She was kept busy back in Edinburgh, making sure all of the logistics of the operation were in hand. Her work ethic, though, was as strong as ever, and it was described by one of her secretaries, a Miss Mayor, as... And I'm not going to put on a lady's accent. I'm just going to read it out. (laughs) It is a direct quote from a woman, though. Okay. (laughs) Not a man with a (laughs) moustache. To those inclined to hesitate, or at least to draw breath occasionally in the course of their heavy work of organising, raising money, gathering equipment, securing transport, passports, and attending to other innumerable secretarial affairs connected with so big a task, she showed no weakening pity. The one invariable goad applied was ever, it is wartime. No one must pause, no one must waver. Things must simply be done, whether possible or not. And somehow, by her inspiration, they generally were done. In those days of agonising stress, she appeared as in herself the very embodiment of wireless telegraphy, aeronautic locomotion, with telepathy and divination thrown in. So, basically, there's no such thing as can't, and I'm going to lead by example by appearing to be able to do anything and everything at all times. She's a... She's hard worker. Beyond that's kind of like that's a great leader is leading by example. Oh yeah, she she didn't and ask like of you, anyone. You would that she wouldn't do. Mm. Yeah, it could have been easy, I guess, at the age of fifty and having already got all of this behind her to say, well, I'm just going to be the figurehead. Yeah. I'm going to be out there gaining the funds because I've got this reputation in Edinburgh. I've got this reputation in the suffragist movement. I don't actually have to do the heavy lifting anymore. I'm the face. You know, I, I don't have to be the... And she's earned it through years of uh, of example and experience. But I, I think part of it is she just thought nobody could actually do it better than her as well. <laughs> she did find it very hard to let go of the reins of the hospital. Holy even though these were to women she trained. Yeah. You know. I mean, so she probably was that type of perfectionist or, you know... Um... It's almost like the hospital was her baby and then suddenly she had this new project that became her new baby and she was just as protective over this one immediately as she had been over the old one. So they just weaned her across to a new drug rather than getting her clean. (laughs) As a result of Elsie's tireless work, by April of 1915, most of the insurmountable problems had been solved, which was good as there was a need for her skills abroad, specifically in Serbia. Uh. As it was a Bosnian Serb who had killed Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, which was the thing that set off the powder keg that became World War I in the first place, Serbia had been invaded early and invaded very, very strongly by the Austro-Hungarians. They wanted to crush their little neighbour, both to exact revenge and to ensure that they only had to fight on one front against Russia. Because Serbia was an ally of Russia and they sit south of where the Austro-Hungarian Empire was, where Russia sat to the north. So the yeah. Austro-Hungarians went, right, Serbia's tiny, we will beat ten bells out of it, and then we can just turn north and we'll just focus on fighting Russia. The rest of the stuff in Europe will take care of itself. We've got our allies, Germany, to sort that front. We uh-huh. we only want to be fighting the Russians. We don't want... So we'll mop the Serbians up really quick. By the time the first unit of the uh, Scottish Women's Hospitals reached Serbia in January 1915, Serbia had already fought off three attempted invasions by the Austro-Hungarians, the last of which, in December, had actually seen the Serbians lose control of their own capital of Belgrade for a couple of weeks um, in December 1914, though they had recaptured it by Christmas, which was nice. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Yeah, well done. you know the whole it'll be over by Christmas. Then it's like the back, they, they, we'll have our capital by Christmas. Don't worry. The heavy fighting, though, had ensured that by the time Dr. Eleanor Soltau and her unit arrived in the country, it was being described as one big hospital. The entirety oh. of Serbia. They were just like, oh. you, want, you want to find people to treat? Look in any direction. Just go in the streets. Yeah. Oh. Just uh, alert that you're a doctor and be prepared to be mobbed. Oh, it sounds like Syria. Mm. Dr. Eleanor, she soon found herself in charge of not one, her own surgical hospital, but also two reserve hospitals that were overflowing with the victims of a massive outbreak of typhus. Oh, man. Oh! Yeah. This outbreak would eventually kill over 150,000 people, or three times the amount who died in the actual fighting. That's crazy. And even worse, it included around a third of all the medical professionals in the country at the time. So although they haven't managed to 
press their advantage with the invasion, what the Austro-Hungarians had done is spoiled every water supply uh, pretty much in every village across the country. Sounds so, like it. Yeah, everybody was drinking tainted water. <coughs> the women of the Scottish Women's Hospital worked to stem the epidemic with minimal resources for three long months interspersing treating those dying with typhus with the amputation of gangrenous limbs from the cartloads of wounded soldiers who arrived at all hours of the day and night. Just to, to, to break it up, because you don't want to be yeah. sort of mopping the brow of somebody dying of uh, typhus all yeah. your shift. You also want to get yeah. a go with the loppers. Right. The bone saw. Gosh. Which I think without be... the anesthesia. Oh yeah, without the anesthesia. Don't, don't you go thinking there was any anesthesia aside from <laughs> strong hooch. Oh. I mean, I think it would be quite cathartic because the sense of being so um, sort of impotent in helping all these people who were dying of typhus, it must have been nice to sort of get your anger out on a saw. Oh, you know, get no. that Get that energy <laughs> gone. And then you're ready to go back to it. Oh. No? Just me? Yeah, it's just you. Just me, okay. <laughs> Anyone can write think, in and give us their I idea. I think I could feel their pain if I sawing a leg and... oh. But no. it's, see, it's seeing the epidemic and knowing we don't have the resources to do anything other than kind of make people comfortable here. There's no treating this. There's just yeah. managing the symptoms until they die or don't die. Yeah. It's really up to you. Madge Fraser, who had represented Scotland as an amateur golfer and whose death prompted the Ladies Golf Union to fund an extra 200 beds in Serbia. Augusta Minchel, Bessie Sutherland and Louisa Jordan who had volunteered to nurse Dr. Elizabeth Ross as she died of typhus, also died during Aww. the epidemic. So that was um, five. Four nurses and one doctor of the first unit out there died. Dr. Elizabeth Ross, the only doctor who died, had previously worked in Persia uh, and had been made an honorary chief of the back... Oh, bloody hell, why do I write these things when I can't pronounce them? <laughs> an honorary chief of the back Tahari people of Iran. So she oh. she was no stranger to harsh conditions, and it had yeah. taken less than a year in Serbia to to lay her low. And you have to imagine all it takes is tainted water. But you have to imagine her constitution. She spent her entire life living, you know, in Bedouin sort of um, setups, and she was considered oh. a chieftain. You know, there's an amazing picture of Dr. Elizabeth Ross actually in full um, sort of garb of the Iranian people, and it's just. She looks so oh. badass. It's just really? such a shame that she ended up dying in a second reserve hospital in Serbia. I know. It's... Even the head of the uh, initial hospital, Dr. Eleanor Saltau, eventually succumbed to the heavy workload and developed diphtheria, which resulted in her having to return home to recuperate. By this time, the typhus epidemic had been brought under control and the grateful Serbian peoples honoured Dr. Eleanor Saltau with the Order of St. Sava, third class. Which, okay. I, know, I don't know what the award is either, but it has also been awarded to, amongst it others, nice. <laughs> Nicholas Tesla and Helen Keller. Tesla? Tesla and Helen Keller. Oh, so, wow. I mean, I, it, it seems very weird that an award can be uh, handed out to both of those people. I don't know what the huh. award is actually for, but um, Dr. Eleanor well, Soltau got one as well. I know in America we have the Medal of Honor, like we have a medal that the president gives out to different genres, different like art or to actors or to scientists mm. and stuff like that. It's the same medal. Or, or if you're an orange year. president, your friends. You're your friends. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, I feel like those don't really count. I don't mm. understand that. I wish I would have gotten an award so I could say no. <laughs> and tell him to f off but um well many yeah. people did but a true real president gives them to real true yeah, people heroes. Them. yeah. <laughs> well even though she was now the order of st starva third class um she couldn't return it was going to take too long and they needed Aww. they needed a leader in the field they needed someone who could organize they needed someone with an unshakable work i wonder ethic. who that could be her replacement was Elsie Inglis. <laughs> uh, El, you could you could bet once she'd actually got the logistics sorted out, she was chomping at the bit. She was like, okay, it's getting boring around here now. I'm only having to work 10-hour days. What can I do? Where can I go? <laughs> like, well, there's a post come Let's up in Serbia. Let's go into the action. Yeah, and she, she jumped in head first. 
Elsie immediately put her tireless work ethic into high gear and began organising for three extra units of the uh, Scottish Women's Hospitals to provide for three blocking hospitals in the north of Serbia to try and contain any future outbreaks moving from the front lines to the rest of the country. So there was the front lines, then there were three hospitals, and anyone coming from the front lines would have to be cleared by those hospitals to make sure that they didn't have any diseases before they'd be allowed into the rest of the country. Oh in the hopes that even if there were more outbreaks on the front lines, they wouldn't then transfer while the Serbians were trying to rebuild their infrastructure behind those hospitals. Interesting, okay. Mm. That's good. Well, it put the Scottish women's hospitals dangerously close to the front because although they'd had three attempts at invading, the Austro-Hungarians weren't done. They, they, like, fourth time. (laughs) Fourth time's the charm. Yeah, I mean, the third. (laughs) The third time they they managed to get the capital, albeit for a short time. So each time, it was almost like the sea coming in. Each time they invaded, they got a little bit the further. tide a little further, yeah. yeah. And they're like, it's Ugh. only a matter of time and we're going to get that little plucky country that yeah. could. They, you can imagine how it's It's probably really frustrating too because they're like, we should have got them the first time. Yeah. We're so we're... much bigger than them. We have so many more weapons. What how is we wrong? Not? Yeah, <laughs> they're now, now they're just got to save face. Yeah, it's... They, no matter what happens, even if the rest of the war's finished, they would still be trying to invade <laughs> Serbia. It would be like, no, this is what we do now. Elsie <laughs> um, herself, though, she wasn't at the blocking hospital. She chose to stay at the hospitals that had been established by the first unit. However, the Serbians, clearly understanding the importance of her organisational skills, they gave her a free pass on the railways so that she could be wherever she was needed at a moment's notice. Wow. So they gave her literally a golden ticket and said, if you show this on any train within Serbia, you won't have to pay. You can go wherever you need to go. Nice. And she spent a couple of months just <clears throat> flying from hospital to hospital, troubleshooting, doing everything she could to make sure that everyone had the resources they needed because they knew another invasion was coming. It was like, well, yeah. this, is the quiet, this is the quiet before the storm. We need to, yep, we need to make the ready. most out of this. Yeah. If you fail to prepare... You've got to prepare to fail. <laughs> Elsie also found time, though, with all of this, to plan not only for the invasion that was coming, but also for the peacetime that would hopefully come afterwards. Um, because she decided that what she could do after the war and what the role of the Scottish Women's Hospitals would be then would be to support the building of fountains, providing clean drinking water in every village in the country in oh. order to reduce the likelihood of future epidemics. So she yeah. identified the cause... And she started speaking to members of the government of Serbia and saying, look, whatever happens, whether you're an occupied territory or whether you resist, we'll stay on after the war and we'll help you to build a network of fountains and wells so that no matter what happens, your people won't have won't to go through typhus yeah. again. Yeah, what people are left. <laughs> but she was coming up with that plan in the middle of preparing for the next phase of the war. See? Like a discharged nurse. <laughs> yeah. And by October 1915, the Austro-Hungarians, they decided that what they really needed in order to finish this invasion was the Bulgarians. And they convinced the Bulgarians to join them in another massive offence against the Serbians. The Scottish Women's Hospitals Committee back in Edinburgh were a bit concerned because obviously they had those three blocking hospitals that were very near the front lines. Yeah. But Elsie reassured them, sending an, e- uh, an email... She also invented a computer, sending a yeah, telegram. Right? She's amazing. <laughs> I just need, just need to set up the World Wide Web. Just give me five minutes. I need to just dash this off. And she sent a telegram that said, Don't worry about us. We won't do anything foolish. And if you will trust us to decide, as we know the most about the situation out here, we will act rationally. So reading between the lines, it's, we're not going to do something stupid. Like, get ourselves captured. Right. Don't you worry <laughs> I'm sensible, I'm rational, you can trust me. (laughs) The units from the three blocking hospitals were forced in November to join the Serbian army in the Great Retreat, as it is now known. However, Elsie refused to withdraw from her own hospitals while people needed her attention and care. She continued working in deteriorating conditions and would sleep through bombardments by German guns. So while (sighs) they were literally being shelled, she was still asleep. Because it was time to sleep, and she was a woman who had stuff to do the next day. Because yes, yeah, there were patients, so yeah. 
I'm sorry, just because there are German guns firing doesn't mean I'm going to be bothered about it. Uh, Elsie and some of her fellow doctors and nurses continued in this way for nearly three months until the last person was successfully discharged from the hospital on February 9th, 1916. There was a, a quote from one of the nurses and she said she distinctly remembered they were working and there was a bombardment going on and she passed Elsie English in the hall and the only thing Elsie said to her was, as they were passing was, this is all very exciting, isn't it? And then just carried oh on. Oh my gosh. <laughs> not phased at all. She was just like, oh, well. This is a oh story we'll tell when we get back, eh? Hey? Um, oh my god. Like, maybe she was uh, the adrenaline It just, she just... She was on a three-month <laughs> adrenaline high. Right. Yeah. <laughs> gosh, this is so much better than being a secretary back then. <laughs> getting people's passports yeah, I, wonder, I wonder if at this point she was regretting it or if she she thought she made the right decision or if she's it, faking it <clears throat> she's just like isn't this exciting and inside she's like oh my god I've already shit my pants <laughs> inside she's been screaming silently for three months right <laughs> I gotta show a good front oh my gosh isn't this great <laughs> only two days after they discharged their last patient uh, Elsie was under armed Austrian guard as a prisoner of war and was taken out of Serbia to be repatriated via Switzerland. It was the last time she would stand on Serbian soil. But she was not going to abandon her new Serbian children, as she thought of her soldiers. She'd taken the Serbian soldiers to her heart, (laughs) and she decided that it was her duty now to look after them. Just like it had been her duty to look after the kids and the women in Edinburgh, it was now her duty to look after these soldiers. So as soon as she got back to Scotland... Elsie began raising funds to get the new front lines in Russia to accept a Scottish woman's hospital. Uh, she was to support the Serbian divisions, though. So she's like, yeah. I, want, I want to be on the Russian lines, but all of those displaced Serbians who are now fighting with their allies, Russia, I want to be stationed with them and provide backup and support specifically to them because I don't know if she feels like she let them down somehow. <laughs> Like she, oh. if she'd only organised well enough, she'd have stopped right. the invasion. But she wasn't for abandoning them, um, and she managed to get that support. She arrived on August sixteenth, nineteen sixteen. So only a few months after she'd been kicked out, she was back on the front lines. <laughs> um, and this time, she did engage in the retreat from Majida to Bralia in Romania, having only been in situ on the front lines for three weeks. So they'd only barely managed to get the hospital up and oh. running, and then like, mm, we're going to have to retreat. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, uh... we are we are ridiculously outmatched. And this time she thought, well, I don't want to have to go through being repatriated and then having to save up again because that's yeah. four months out of time. So I'll I'll go with you because that way I can be closer to my Serbs, our peeps, my guys, our peeps. Yep. <laughs> uh, but while she was in Bralia in Romania, she found herself as one of only seven doctors who were treating approximately 11,000 wounded soldiers oh, and sailors. God. Uh, and that was a movable feast because although they started in Bralia with all of these wounded, they had to keep moving with the wounded. And she was moving and working until oh, the very God. next August. So she lasted a year where it was constant run, work, run, work. Mm. Um, yeah. And in August 1917, she was finally reunited with her Serbian division. Because she'd lost them at the very start of being in Russia. Like that very first retreat, she'd lost her Serbians. And she spent a year moving around as a doctor for hire almost until she found them again. Because she wasn't going to give up. No. (laughs) She's a fighter. Aye. Although, as far as I know, she didn't actually ever pick up a weapon. She didn't even slap... A, an Austro-Hungarian She's a different kind of anger. fighter. Yeah. She's a non-violent fighter. <laughs> She'll just stare at you, judgmentally. <laughs> and you, you'll feel bad in the pit of your stomach. You'll know <laughs> you've done bad on yourself. <laughs> She'll charm it out of you. Um, by the time she was reunited with her Serbian division, the Russian Revolution had taken place. But the Russians still took the time to write a letter of thanks to Elsie personally on behalf of the new Russian Republic for the work that she'd done during the year she was with them. So she'd been retreating with the Russians all over the place, trying to find her Serbians. And even though it had just been a gap filler, the Russians were so thankful for the work that she'd done that they took the time during a revolution. Write her a letter. Write a nice little note of thanks. Not an email. Oh, it was a letter. 
Well, you know, she hadn't passed the technology on to them yet. That was for her personal correspondence. Elsie refused to leave until her Serbian soldiers were also provided with ships to withdraw. This was in spite of the fact that she was terminally ill with bowel cancer, which was unbeknownst to anyone else at the time in order to keep up morale. So it got to the point where they were so overrun and because the Russians were kind of doing their own thing with the um, revolution at the time, they had to withdraw and all of the British forces were saying, look, we can get you out, Elsie, and all of you Scottish women's, you know, hospital peeps, we can get you out. And she just sat there in the port and went, not until every one of my Serbians also has a boat. You either take all of us or you take none of us. And they eventually on November the 14th, gave way to Elsie's iron will and agreed to leave (laughs) Russia with all of her Serbian soldiers. Good for her. She sent a message ahead to the um, sort of headquarters of the Scottish Women's Hospital saying, on our way home, everything satisfactory and all are well except me. That was the first anyone knew that she may be feeling a little under the weather. Oh, yeah. Because she'd she'd achieved her mission now. She got the Serbian soldiers that she promised she'd look after out of the war and to safety. She arrived in Newcastle on Friday, November the 23rd, along with her unit and the Serbian division that she'd been tasked with looking after. Despite her terminal illness, Dr Inglis stood on the deck for half an hour while each Serbian officer formally took leave of her. She died within a day of disembarking. Wow. Her funeral was held on November 29th at St. Giles she Cathedral. She was like, wait, so that's amazing. That's Early amazing 50s. that you're able to, because bowel cancer, mm. colon cancer runs in my family. And they, you know, there's been a very bitter end, right? Yeah. I can't imagine them standing out there. No. Like the day before they die, like. That's amazing that she had that resolve. And you wouldn't have been to Newcastle in England. Um, wet, um, windy, cold. Yeah. I mean, oh. in November. Whoo, that's, that's <laughs> going to be a bit nippy. And she stood yeah. because every wow. single one of the officers wanted to honour her by taking formal leave. And she wanted to. And they didn't know she was sick. At that point, they finally did. Oh, they, they didn't did. know how sick, but... Uh, she still insisted that she wasn't getting off the ship until every one of them had yeah. formally taken leave and left the ship. So she was the last off. Wow. Her funeral was held on November 29th at St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. Elsie was buried with military honours. With military honours. Military honours. Uh, <laughs> and both the British and Serbian royalty were in attendance. Wow. Elsie posthumously received the Order of the White Eagle from the Serbian Crown Prince Alexander. She was the first woman to receive the honour. Her memory endures in Serbia, where the country's first palliative hospice was named after her in 2020. 2020, just, mm-hmm. just like, wow. Mm-hmm. She, is, she is remembered more probably in Serbia than she is in Britain. Yeah, well, they didn't want to have her at the first place. Yeah. Well, Winston Churchill, they don't want to remember. <laughs> as, of all the people, you know, someone as famous as Winston Churchill said of her, and the South, uh, the Scottish women's hospitals. No body of women has won a higher reputation in the Great War. Their work, lit up by the fame of Dr. Inglis, will shine in history. Ah, But because I think um, for a few reasons, I mean, firstly, she died, the war was still going on. Yeah. Um, so there were still battles to be fought. There were still things that needed to happen. Um, the fact that the suffragist movement wasn't considered as famous or as newsworthy as the suffragette movement. Um, and just maybe the fact that she, you know, she didn't have the time to work on her own legacy like um, Florence Nightingale and Mary Seacole both did in their own ways. I mean, Mary wrote her own book and she was a great self-publicist and Florence really had the years of government and she, you know, she pushed forward in a policy way. Elsie didn't have the opportunity to do that. She was grassroots so it was yeah. the it was the people who remembered it rather than the people who yeah. write the histories you know um in terms of to sort of back that up the source that i use the main one 
Elsie Inglis, The Woman with the Torch, was written by Eva Shaw McLaren shortly after her death, and that's her sister. Oh, so one of the two main autobiographies was written by her sister. So I guess you could say there's probably um, some bias there to paint her in a good light. True. But I read it. Like Sophia's book was written by her girlfriend, her Ah. last girlfriend. So there probably could have been, yeah, some bias there as well. To be fair, in terms of Elsie and her sister's treatment of her, there was another biography written around the same time. And although they have different sort of anecdotes and there's different sources that they've used in terms of people they've spoken to, the general theme of this was a woman who was liked by everyone, couldn't do enough for you, and was just hardworking to the point of it being almost masochistic. It was almost, you know, beyond what would be considered reasonable. It it shone through in both. But there you go. That's um, the second second wave of um, Scottish female doctors. I love that story. She's amazing. She's awesome. She's, she's something. Yeah, she's something. <laughs> but you can imagine she died in her mid-50s. If she'd have managed to get another 20 yeah. years out. She could have had a whole other section of... Would have had a nearly <laughs> nearly 100-year-old Elsie Inglis going She'd out to the like... front lines in World War Two. World War II. Yeah. She talked to the American service people devastated by um, Pearl Harbor <laughs> and she stayed with them for the rest of the war. <laughs> right? Oh my gosh. She was That's... there on the SS Indianapolis treating shark bites and <laughs> various oh chemical gosh. burns. Yeah, I could see that. I could see it. But I, I also <laughs> think, you know, if you are going to work tirelessly for 50 years of your life to the point where you seem to never sleep, it's probably going to catch up on your health-wise at some yeah. point. She makes me feel very um, inadequate. Mm. <laughs> Like, uh, when I get to 50, um, <laughs> I'm still living the same life. I'm not starting a whole nother chapter. <laughs> it's like for, for any of those people out there, and I, I am one, who's like, I'm going to write a novel one of these days. Elsie did. Elsie right. wrote an entire novel. And she was working 20-hour days. So right. who knows when she scribbled How it. How can we not write a novel? I've thought of that a lot. I, I um... I want to write a, a a novel someday, but I would love to see some lockdown statistics about how many people intended to write a novel and how yeah, far and don't yeah people got like the percentage you'll see it dropping like uh, you know of all the people who started <laughs> just this cliff edge. Some fun? people have the title. Some people have the first sentence or paragraph. Mm. Some people have the end already, but it never gets done. No. <laughs> But I guess if even one person found out they were an author, that must have, that must have been great. You know, for, there was one person in lockdown who was like, I finally have time to write, and then realized they were really good at it. Yeah. Like, oh, my, yes. I never need to go back to work again. Well, there is actually a whole new genre of book, of, like, a genre of books of pandemic theme. Right. Books. Yeah. So, so they're calling it a, a genre. Like... There's horror, there's suspense, romance, whatever. Well, now there's a new name, a new genre, and it's it's the, I don't even know what it's called, but it's part, it's a pandemic um, genre. So things that happened. Right. So okay. stories that are written during the, like this lockdown pandemic thing. So it's like a theme, it's a whole theme, but it's based around the pandemic and the lockdowns. And I, I, I read, it, well, it was an article by Audible. Oh, and, right, yeah. Because I do Audible. I like the books. Um, that's not a plug. <laughs> we're not, Unless they we're not send you be money. On Audible, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. If they want to send us money, Audible's <laughs> they, great. If they want to. But um, they had an article about this new genre. Hmm. And there's already books written. Like, people were already on it in the but, beginning of this pandemic, writing really stories. That's interesting, though, because it'll probably die out quite quickly as we get towards the end of COVID. And then you'll right. have this this little period that social historians can go to and be like this this genre that's right. up and what it says about the way different people dealt with lockdown and you'll get well, the optimistic the... ones and the pessimistic ones and until the next virus. Well, we've got about hundred years between <laughs> them. <we're fine. laughs> Me and you are fine anyway. <laughs> I got my vaccine. 
It's like oh. you get one, you get one pandemic a lifetime. We're good. We're good. <laughs> right? When's the last one? It was like nineteen eighteen. Well, it was uh, yeah, the Spanish flu. Was just Spanish after. flu. And then they had the well, the polio vaccine. That wasn't like a virus, but was it a virus? Is polio a virus? We should no. know this, shouldn't we? I feel like I should. I don't know. I think it's I a virus. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be a virus. Is it a virus? Yeah. Well, if it's a vaccine, it must be. Yeah. Okay. No, uh, but it wasn't like a Spanish flu. What we'll do is we'll say, it's a virus. <laughs> and we'll take a second and we'll go, no, it's clearly bacterial. <laughs> In fact, just to be on the safe side, it's fungal. <laughs> so we'll sound smart no matter which way I splice it. I'll be able to check afterwards and... Uh, <laughs> that's the joy of podcasting you can go back and just be like right and do the edit well no that was a great that was a great story thank you so much for sharing that one no worries hi there it's emma chief organizer at consistently eccentric here to remind you all that if you like what you hear you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on acast spotify and itunes how fancy you can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.